to another episode of Firewall. Uh, with me today is our friend and producer Hugo Lindgren. And as I think for those of you who, who are following along at home, you know that we're trying something new where uh, once a week, Hugo and I are going to have a conversation about different topics that we find interesting, and hopefully you do too. Um, and then once a week, I'll interview someone. So t- today is the Hugo and me part of the uh, ball game. So Hugo, welcome again. Yeah, thanks. We're here on Tuesday. Usually we release these on Tuesday, but uh, uh, did you take Memorial Day off, Bradley? I, I was no. Well, we, we had debate prep. Yeah, there's a mayoral debate uh, Wednesday night. So. I was I was with Yank. So we're going to start by talking about uh, a story that Bradley sent me over the weekend from the Washington Post, which is about a, a neighborhood in Atlanta, sort of one of the one of the more uh, I guess how would you call it? It's 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 one of the more privileged neighborhoods, one of the more yeah. So Buckhead is a wealthy neighborhood in Atlanta, and there was a story in the Washington Post about uh, I guess there's a movement there um, to explore anyway, uh, seceding from the city um, and creating its own its own town, its own city. Um, which you know, is a pretty dramatic move. Um, it, it's related to, to the uh, spike in crime that's happened in Atlanta and some of the uh, leadership issues that they've had in Atlanta. Bradley, wh- why did you send me this story? I mean, I, I know why, but but you can tell. Everyone. Well, yeah, I mean, because I, I've been interested in the secession topic for a while, and I, I've written about it a little bit, um, because I, I think it's very emblematic of the larger problems kind of confronting this country right now. Um, look, there are examples all the time. Staten Island wants to secede from New York City. Vermont wants to secede from the U.S. California either wants to break up into seven different regions or become their own country or seven different countries. And and the, the thing ultimately is once we go down a road of secession, um, it, you can logically extend it to the point where uh, there's no anything other than, you know, neighborhood groups with walls around. Right. You get back to feudal days with with fiefdoms. So, you know, like if you take New York City, okay, Staten Island leaves, fine. Now you have four boroughs. Um, but once they do, you know other people are gonna want to leave as well. And then eventually you're gonna get to like zip code by zip code. And then when even within 10021 or whatever the most expensive zip code is, uh, some buildings are fancier than others, right? So you can get to a point where it, it's the ultimate breakdown uh, of society. And I'm not worried about Buckhead you know, now lighting a match that, that blows up the entire United States. But I think the fact that there are all these genuine movements around secession, I think tells you how polarized we are, how dysfunctional we've become, um, and how if we don't change the rhetoric where everything is seen as adversarial and confrontational, um, this is what we're going to get. But there is a kind of like, uh, there is a there is an interesting question here about what scale is right for government, right? I mean, the, I, I mean, I, I don't, neither one of us knows enough about the situation in Atlanta to, to discuss knowingly what, what what's happening there. Um, but there is a, there is a need for control over one's environment that is, that is both a, a natural good thing and, and, a, and a potentially toxic thing as well. Yeah. I mean, look, part of it gets back to income inequality. So Buckhead is a wealthy neighborhood. They pay a disproportionately high amount of taxes. Uh, it's at 40% of the of Atlanta's property wealth is in Buckhead. Right. So, you know, and crime, according to this article, has exploded in, in Buckhead, just as we've seen crime rise here in New York and a lot of other cities too. And so Buckhead residents are really saying, even if they're not saying this out loud, um, if, if all the tax money we paid went to just Buckhead as opposed to the city of Atlanta as a whole, there'd be a lot more resources to protect the public safety of Buckhead specifically, right? Um, and and sure, I mean, if 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 wealthy areas and now is sort of what prompted the rise of the suburbs in some ways, um, only focus on themselves, the exclusion of everyone else, 
um, of course, it's better for them. It's, it's worse for society at large. So, you know, you can't have this splintering off or all of a sudden you end up with even far worse inequality than we have right now. But at the same time, whether it's people on Staten Island or cops and firefighters and think that they're not taken seriously by the rest of New York City or, you know, rich people in Buckhead who, who don't want uh, to pay taxes to the rest of the city of Atlanta, um, the thing they have in common is they don't feel heard, right? And when you have a political culture in which it's all screaming and it's all toxic and everyone is either a hero or, or the devil and there's nothing in between, um, then that's when you get to the point where people get frustrated enough that they want to leave. And so whether it's the mayor of New York that we pick in the, in the primary in the next few weeks or whoever replaces Mayor Bottoms in Atlanta or whatever else, um, you need mayors that, that aren't so divisive um, that, that they feel like they belong to one community at the expense of everyone else. Can you see this? I mean, you, you talked about this a little bit at the top, but, but can you see this becoming kind of a rolling American version of Brexit where, where there just is a kind of, I mean, a lot of these things that people are talking about, like in California, are really just blue sky kind of nonsense. I mean, they, they reflect real resentments and so forth, but they're not things that are going to be happening soon. But, but they get set off by cultural touchstones, right? Mm -hmm. So like you, you live in Atlanta and let's say Atlanta's Board of Education or School Board, wherever it is, follows San Francisco's original lead of, of renaming all of the schools to, to reflect, you know, uh, the norms of today's society. Sometimes it's, it's symbolic things like that that make, make some people feel totally sort of like they no longer fit in or belong, or even just that, that, that they are feeling judged harshly. Um, and that's what produces a lot of it more so than rational decisions around public safety or taxes or budgeting um, or anything else. And this happens on both sides, right? So the Supreme Court is hearing uh, a case involving a Mississippi abortion law that would effectively limit it to 13 weeks or something like that. Um, and, and, you know, if if that were to pass to people in Oxford, Mississippi, which is considered kind of a, a left-wing town within Mississippi, do they say, you know what, we're out of here, Right. We're not welcome here. And they leave. And you get to a point where everyone reorganizes themselves among either like-minded based on wealth or by ideology. And at that point, you cease to have a functioning country. Let's focus on crime for a second. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, my my father-in-law handed me the, the New York Post over the weekend. I'm sure you saw it. There was like a one of those scaremongering headlines about Washington Square Park turning into the New Needle Park. Yeah. And uh, he, he was alarmed because we live close to Washington Square Park. Our children hang out there. Our children are teenagers and they go there, yeah. you know, pretty regularly. I, I go there almost every day. And, you know, it's, it's definitely a little more kind of chaotic than it's been other other times. But it's but it's also pretty great. And there's a lot of vitality there and, and you know, a whole incredible mix of people. I mean, young people, old people, um, you know, all different ethnicities. It's, it's pretty it's pretty exciting um, in a lot of ways. That's why my kids like going there. Um, but on the other hand, you know, people in the neighborhood are are, are uh, sort of feeling the effects of, you know, some some kinds of behavior that they don't like. What's your view of it, like walking around New York? It's it's two things. So one is park specific because you, you you as you may remember, I spent four years at the New York City Parks Department, so I have very strong views about parks. Do you think I could possibly forget that? Bradley? Not why I remind you of it every day when I wait. You're, you're reminding the the listeners. <laughs> um, but um, so two things. So one, in terms of what makes a good park. It's a it's a balance, right? You need vitality and energy, and that's going to mean things are a little dicier and riskier um, than if you had a, a Waldorf fortress. It, you know, I live right uh, by Gramercy Park, and it's an incredibly boring place, right? It's it's literally gated. 
Um, it's all old people inside complaining to each other about whatever they read in the Wall Street Journal that morning. And that's it. There's a, actually, there's not even that most days. I mean, literally, people are never yeah, in it's, there. It's it not, like. I walk Sam the dog around the park sometimes. And um, yeah, it's it's generally pretty empty. So the, I would call that... Wait, I want to add one more point. I'm sorry yeah. to cut you off by that Gramercy Park, though. That's the most disgusting sidewalk in New York City, because since you can't go in the park, everybody walks their dog around the outside of the yeah, park. Yeah, there's, there's a poop problem. That's true. Um <laughs> But put, put, putting aside the poop problem, it, it's a park that in many ways is a failed park because it has, it's not of the community. It has no energy. It has no vitality. So even if you have a key, unless I guess you just want to be alone inside of a big green space, it's kind of pointless, right? At the same time, you think of what Union Square Park, or Washington Square Park, or Tompkins Square Park was like in the 80s and early 90s, uh, and it was so unsafe that, that you couldn't go in there at all. That's obviously a, 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 an equal failure, if not greater. Um, so you've got to have a mix of uh, a, enough diversity of different kinds of people and activities to make it seem fun and interesting and have a lot of energy without um, so much of one side or the other that either becomes totally staid and boring or becomes dirty and dangerous. So, you know, I think finding that balance is tricky. At the same time, if you had a high-functioning city government, which we don't right now, but maybe we will, um, and a high-functioning parks department, and in partnership especially with NYU for Washington Square Park, because NYU has a lot of money and a lot of incentive to keep Washington Square Park pretty clean and safe, um, you, you can find that balance. Right. So um, it's it's doable, but it, it really takes two things. One, it, parks have to be actively tended and cared for. And if not, they fall apart. And two, um, the community has to have buy in. Right. When, when local communities you know, care enough about their local park that they volunteer to do plantings or trash pickups or whatever it is, it, it helps keep those parks clean. But more important, it creates a sense of ownership and pride. And that's really what deters bad behavior, right? If if your mom is is planting in a park, you know, once a week, you're probably less likely to deface it or to graffiti or urination or whatever it is because you see firsthand the work that goes into it. And so, you know, for parks specifically, I think that the post story was probably a pretty gross exaggeration, um, but it it does tell you that we've had sort of uh, eight years of benign neglect by Bill de Blasio and his administration, and it's really starting to show. I have two widely divergent questions, but one of them I have to ask, since you worked in the Parks Department, as we've established, um, why doesn't the city just take over uh, uh, Gramercy Park by eminent domain? Why, why doesn't that happen? Um, I think that it's a combination of it, it's not really worth the fight. I haven't seen the legal charter for Gramercy Park, but it's probably pretty airtight because I'm sure you have enough lawyers living kind of on the park to ensure that. So, you know, could you wage that war and win? Yeah, I guess you ultimately could. Eminent domain could. Um, but you'd be tied up in litigation for years and years. And if you're the mayor, is it really what you want to spend so much of your political capital on? Probably not. But if de Blasio didn't do it, and for him symbolically, it was right up his alley, I don't think yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So the other question I have is is about the New York Post, um, and and uh, their one of their other big stories from the weekend was about the return of Squeegee Men, which yeah. um, is is really just it's funny how massive the Squeegee Man kind of mythology is in in, uh, in the New York Post, yeah. and, and I guess to some readers, I guess is it people do, do they panic you, Squeegee Man? Yeah, uh, well, look, so I. I... Read the story with Lyle this morning, as as we do every morning, and I tried to explain to him the significance of the squeegee men, and I'm not really sure uh, my point came across or not. So, but I, I think there's there's three things. One, um, 
there is definitely a decrease in quality of life in New York City, an increase in crime, an increase in violence, an increase in shootings, and also an increase in homelessness and littering and graffiti and public urination defecation uh, and all of those things. And eventually that gets to a point where the city becomes unlivable and people like you or me stop living here and ultimately the tax base flees and, and the city falls apart completely. That's the risk we face if, if we don't address these problems. Um, but beyond that one, look, the Post has a political agenda, which right now includes electing Eric Adams as mayor. So the more this election is about crime and safety, the better positioned Adams is. So the Post is trying very hard to create that climate for him. And second, you just you sell more papers when, when things are bad and controversial than when things are good. Um, and so if you're a tabloid, uh, playing up the squeegee men is very much in your interest. So I don't think the problem is nearly as bad as in general as the Post makes it out to be. But but overall, you know, that same benign neglect that we talked about with de Blasio a minute ago around parks, same thing is true on squeegee men and everything else. Um, if you don't actively manage a city, it falls apart pretty quickly. We've had a horrible manager for the last seven and a half years. And that's why whoever we picked in three weeks is so critical. Obviously, I think it should be Andrew Yang. But whoever it is needs to be someone who understands that the role of city government is to keep the place clean and safe and well run. What do you think the uh, I mean, not taking the Yang question out of the out of out of it for the minute. Um, where does the division over police really go from here politically like the I mean, I think the Buckhead situation is one way it goes. Right. Which is the the people in that neighborhood being like, well, we don't we don't feel like we're getting the service we want. We're concerned about crime. So we're going to consider these other alternatives. Um, the, the, what, what's the other side? Like what else can happen that, that brings this to another place? Um, well, look, it, it, it's interesting because if you look at the defund the police movement, it, it's not split up along the lines. I think people might expect it, it's not a purely a racial thing where, um, people of color very much want to actually defund the police and, and white people don't. It's really an age thing. Um, you know, people, I'd say under the age of 30, especially people who don't have kids, people who, uh, you know, haven't really established their careers yet, haven't bought a home, um, are much more likely to support uh, a defund the police movement. Um, and, and people who are older than that of every community, by the way, especially in lower income communities where crime is uh, a lot more of a problem, um, don't want to defund the police at all. So, you know, you've got sort of a real question of, can you have a police force that is effective in deterring crime and at the same time respects the rights of people? Um, the answer should be yes. And, and I think that it is, you know, it, it can be yes. But again, it takes a, a mayor who very actively tries to manage and control the situation to make sure that people feel heard and respected. It gets back to the same point earlier on the flip side around Buckhead and, and Staten Island and secession, which is people don't feel heard and respected. The problem with stop and frisk was that you know so the number of people they were actually finding things on and arresting was so infinitesimal compared to the number of people that were being stopped um, that it just felt like an incredible degradation of, of people's basic rights to, to entire communities and that bred tremendous amounts of, of legitimate grievance and resentment. So um, I, I think the good news is none of the people running for mayor other than Adams uh, have said that they want to bring back stop and frisk. Um, but, you know, at the same time, Stop and Frisk did do a good job taking guns off of people. And we've now got an, an epidemic of shootings. So it's, it's finding that balance. I think one of the reasons that Yang, for example, was the first to call for a civilian police commissioner is to try to have someone who 
wasn't kind of raised in a paramilitary culture, which is, is what police departments typically are, um, and can see it from the perspective more broadly than of just arrest stats and comp stat and everything else. Um, and so, look, I, I know that Yang will, will find someone who can hopefully reach that balance if he's elected. Um, you have other candidates like Stringer and Morales and Wiley who, who would defund the police um, or can't stand up to the people who want to defund the police. And then people like Adams who uh, want to bring back stop and frisk. So, you know, it's it's uh, again, it's about finding the right balance. But it's an issue that every mayor in this country, by the way, whether, whether they're black or white, you know, Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta is black. Bill de Blasio and Mike Bloomberg are both white. Um, everyone struggles with this issue. Uh, there was some news a week or two ago about how the Citizen app was going to uh, start uh, a service that included like a private security force, which I gather uh, has, they're not going to do. Um, they should not do that. Yeah. No, they're, I, I, they're, but, but it does suggest that those kinds, I mean, those kinds of things are all over the place. If you go to Los Angeles, you know, everybody uh, contracts, well, not everybody, but, but, um, but in, in wealthier neighborhoods, yeah. uh, there's tons of private security uh, agencies that, that people contract with. Um, it feels like we're going to, you know, if, if the if the if the police cannot be reformed in a way that that uh, it doesn't involve simply gutting their budget or 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 um, or make it basically impossible for police departments to recruit people, um, they're going to be private alternatives that are going to. That are going to really there, look, there are there are and there will be um, you know part of LA also is that as, as you know it, it's not really even a city it's a kind of collection it's a county with collections of lots of little municipalities in it so a lot of the wealthier communities are not incorporated as part of the city of Los Angeles but you know they're Beverly Hills or Brentwater I don't actually I don't, I don't know if Brentwood's a separate city or not but but it's, it's a lot of wealthy communities that therefore have their own police forces as we all learned uh, in the great uh, Beverly Hills cop series. Um, and uh, and and they conducted themselves. But look, if, if you take it back to Buckhead, that's what's going to happen, right? The odds of Buckhead seceding from Atlanta are pretty low because the actual mechanism seceding from anything is incredibly hard and slow and will be in court forever. So the more likely scenario is that people in, in Buckhead organize their own neighborhood watches and hire private security companies. And on one hand, that will supplement the local police budget and help keep things safer. On the other hand, the odds of there being a, a misunderstanding and then a shooting uh, of someone who's innocent are probably a lot higher as well, which will lead to all kinds of other unrest. So, you know, private security forces in and of itself um, are something people might turn to to try to solve a problem, but, but they're probably not a great long-term solution to them. So one of the other clips, I guess we're going to stay on crime here for a minute, but the the uh, one of the clips you also sent me over the weekend was about uh, drug cartels in Mexico. Uh, going to the homes of Mexican police officers and executing them or torturing them in front of their families, which is obviously horrible. What? What? I mean, there's there's a there's a kind of pattern of news like this that we get from from Mexico. I, I can never. Well, here's here, here's why I sent it to you because ironically, it was tied back to the New York Post Washington Square uh, cover. Okay. So our our, our mutual friend Howard uh, sent a, a text to a group of political consultant types that were on a text chain together, kind of with an image of the cover and saying. It seems like we've effectively already decriminalized drug use. And I wrote back and said, well, not really, because even if Washington Square Park um, drug dealers are not being you know, confronted, uh, you still have this you know, mass incarceration of, of millions of, of young men, many of uh, people of color. You have hundreds of billions of dollars spent uh, on law enforcement and you have the war on drugs, which has absolutely ravaged Mexico and other parts of Latin America. 
And so what we have is sort of the worst of all worlds. You, you have people using drugs and all the problems that come with it without any of the benefits of it being regulated and legal and taxed uh, and basically the way that the alcohol works. Um, and so right now we're in the worst of both worlds. And it seems to me you're never going to solve the problem, whether it's in Washington Square Park or in Jalisco or anywhere else, um, until you corporatize the whole thing, right? Turn it. The, the one thing this country does really, really well is we take things and we turn them into corporate products and then a corporate culture takes over and all of a sudden they become part of the local economy and then part of the global economy. And so if you said to corporate America, have at it, um, and you can now sell narcotics in the way that you sell alcohol, I, I think most of the violence would go away pretty quickly because the cartels would get put out of business and the drug dealers would get put out of business because it would just become like any other industry. Now, you could argue that then maybe kids and other people would be even more likely to try drugs and that would create other problems. And clearly opioids, which were legal, led to a, a massive problem. Um, by the way, speaking of which, recommend the series Mayor of Easttown, if anyone's looking for something to watch. Um, it's about Wait, what is it? Say it again. Mayor of Easttown on HBO. It's, it's, it's not specifically about the opioid crisis, but it's about a community that's been kind of hollowed out by the opioid crisis. And so anyway, but point being, there's no easy solution here and that legalizing drugs will certainly come with meaningful costs to it, especially if you legalize the drugs that really are, cause a lot of the violence. So cocaine, heroin, things like that, meth. Um, but at the same time, to me, all the violence in Latin America, in inner cities in, in the US, what Buckhead is dealing with right now, what Washington Square Park is dealing with, it's all connected to the same underlying thing, which is we take this thing that human beings clearly want to have access to, we make it illegal, and therefore create all this illicit trade around it, which leads to all of these problems. And and I mean, the the I think some of the words you use are going to scare. I don't know, scare, but but uh, get people on the left all riled up. Who who? We'll just, no, I don't want to do it because I, they love me. No, I know they love you. If, if, if you go on <laughs> yeah. left wing Twitter and the blogs, I'm like I'm their fucking hero. So. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm sure this will really ruin everything between me and that. But the corporatizing of of the of the drug business is probably something that that those on the left uh, are are fairly fearful of. No, I, I guess so. Although you know, ironically, the support for legalization of drugs tends to come either from the libertarian community on the right or from people on the far left. So. Oh, no, they support legalization for sure. But I guess they have this more sort of organic. Yeah, but look, it's the same reason why they're, it's the same reason why they're against charter schools, right? You have these schools that are performed, many, not all, but many are providing meaningfully better educations and outcomes for black and brown kids. And lots of people who are so-called progressives oppose them because they fear the privatizing, corporatizing of education, which means they're just taking the teachers union rhetoric and buying it hook, line and sinker. Um, so same thing here. And, and look, the reality is, Look, the left in some ways puts another perspective into the hopper that sometimes is useful to consider. Um, but overall, the, if there's one gratifying thing about this mayoral campaign, if you look at the top three challengers right now in a city as progressive as New York City, it's Yang, Adams, and Garcia. It is not Morales, Wiley, or Stringer, um, which means that the, despite all of the belief that all of the energy is on the left and all of the kind of focus on it on Twitter, um, in, in reality, uh, people don't really want uh, those views to, to be how they live, to govern how they live. Where do you see, uh, just because obviously a big part of our, our listenership is is interested in your views on tech, and we haven't really touched on that at all, but is there a is there a role in any of this in in terms of the uh, in terms of legalization of yeah, drug of business, in terms of dealing with street crime, in terms of uh, in these other issues of personal safety? There's lots, right? I mean, so 
Brink Drones, uh, Blake Resnick was on this podcast and, and you and I both got to know Blake a little bit and, and we subsequently invested in in Brink Drones. Um, it is a way- the Brink, no, just, just for our listeners, the Brink episode is not aired yet, oh. um, but we have recorded it and, and it will be aired it's aired awesome. soon. So. You will love it. Um, so, say a little bit about what Brink is maybe. The Brink Drones is a form of drone that is used by law enforcement for things like hostage negotiations, SWAT teams. Um, it can, it, if there's a fire, it could go in there and see where people are, where the fire is. So the firefighters have much better information when they're running to a burning building. Um, but one other thing it could be used for is no-knock warrants, um, which means you know rather than the Breonna Taylor situation or anything like that, uh, if an unarmed drone enters, it's still an intrusion, but at least no one's going to die from it. You can get the information to determine whether or not armed officers are needed. And important to say these are fully non-lethal drones. They are not, they're not yeah. like drones used in the Middle East to kill terrorists. No, they're not weaponized in any way. They're just cameras and two-way communication devices uh, that can fly. Um, so that's a good example. Or, um, you know, uh, the, the, if you believe that legalization of drugs will lead to a lot less crime and a lot less mass incarceration, um, the tech sector, if you look at cannabis, has really led the way in developing technology that allows the cannabis sector um, to, to become a real business, right? All of the retailing, all of the software, all of the you know, tracking, all that stuff comes out of tech. You're now starting to see the very beginning of it uh, with psilocybin. So, you know, psychedelic drugs, ketamine, things like that. Um, and, you know, Yang actually this weekend proposed uh, making some of those drugs legal for veterans who are suffering from PTSD. And so I think we're at the very incipient stages uh, of legalization of, of that class of drugs. And the tech sector is typically the, the ones leading the way. So we're going to close with a little, uh, a, a little, I guess, a chaser. Um, we're going to talk for a second about Naomi Osaka, who pulled out of the French Open because she doesn't. Oh, you're letting me talk about sports. You never do that. Well, tennis is not really the kind of sports that I think bores our readers like you on basketball, our listeners like you on the Knicks. Um, I can give like a good ten minutes on the, the Mets, where where everyone on the injured reserve list sits, uh, if you like. <laughs> but they're playing amazing. It turns out the, it turns out their their we team are, is better than their A team. We are twenty six and twenty. We are three and a half games up over Atlanta, five up over Philly. We have a five sixty five winning percentage. I am very happy. All right, what about Osaka? Well, I'm curious. So Naomi Osaka, uh, a fabulous young tennis player, pulls out of the French Open because she doesn't want to do interviews with the media. Um, it, it's obviously become this major war of words uh, on cable television, on Twitter, um, over whether uh, her mental health is really at risk or if she's um, you know, obligated to do these things like any other professional athlete. Um, what, what's your view of it? Well, for, first of all, if she thinks it's at risk, then it is at risk, right? Um, because mental health is totally subjective, number one. Number two, the value in Naomi Osaka is watching her, I mean, I'm not a big tennis fan, but is, is watching her play tennis, not whatever inane comments she makes about, you know, I'm just keeping my eye on the ball and staying focused and taking one day at a time or whatever nonsense athletes spout out at press conferences. So, who cares? Don't make her do the press conference. Let her play tennis. That's what the fans want to see. That's the thing that she's good at and cares about. And I think it's ridiculous to say, that, well, if you're not willing to do our media veils in the way that we want you to do them, um, therefore you can't play. So the fact that she felt compelled to withdraw from the French Open is really a sign of, of bad management by the Tennis Association. So what has she said that the, that having a playing in front of a big crowd is distracting to her and, and puts bad thoughts in her mind? Um, so she'd like to play her matches without anybody but, in the crowd. You're right. And th that would be a point where you'd say no, because look, sports only exists uh, in a commercial form for the enjoyment of the fans, right? You have to have people that are willing to part with their money to watch it in some form in person on TV, whatever it is, 
for the athletes to have an actual job where they make a living from it, as opposed to just being recreational tennis players like everyone else. Um, a big part of that revenue does come from people attending the events. Just like if she said, oh, it makes it uncomfortable for me to know that this is being televised. Well, too bad, right? That's, that's what's paying you. Um, but I think there are things that are integral to performing the act of tennis, like having fans, like televising it so that it can be a commercial enterprise. People like her can make a living from doing it. And things like her giving, like I said, fairly bland, insipid comments to reporters after the match, which just does not seem that important. Well, look, they may be bland and insipid, and I'm sure they are. It's the only thing more boring than tennis than I could think of than like listening to people talk about tennis. But um, you know, reporters go to the uh, to the tournament so that they write stories back from wherever they're from, so that people watch the tournament and that there's a whole kind of like attraction to the thing it's not just tennis it's about this young woman and her her overcoming hurdles and getting her perspective on it is is part of why people watch they don't just watch ground strokes are good but they they can first of all they can still write about her whether or not she's providing insipid comments or not number one in some ways it's almost more interesting if she's reclusive because then it's like someone a little different Two, for every Naomi Osaka, there's 50 to 100 top players who are more than happy to talk to reporters and say things that no one cares about. So it, it is not like they can't do their job if someone who says this presents a legitimate mental health challenge for me um, isn't made available to them after the matches. In some ways, it actually makes for better copy anyway. But also, like, the notion that it's the, you know, AP's print coverage of the French Open that's driving uh, viewership, like, I, you know, I, in the same way that I don't think that endorsements and print coverage of, of elections has that much of an impact these days on what voters do. I'm not sure it has a huge impact on sports fans either. All right. Well, I, I appreciate your being completely wrong to end the, uh, end the podcast. Yeah. I, that's, that's always my, uh, <laughs> if, if, if I can make you upset, then I've succeeded in my in the mission here. It was well argued. All right, Bradley till next week. All right. Thanks. Hey, and uh, for the listeners, please uh, rate and review us. I always forget to do that, but um, that's how more people will find out uh, about this podcast and tell your friends. Thank you.